Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today joining me is Dr. Samir Okasha. He is a professor of philosophy of science at the University of Bristol. He is a winner of the Lacatus Award for his book Evolution and the Levels of Selection. He was appointed a fellow of the British Academy in 2018 and is also the president of the European Philosophy of Science Association. He has broad philosophical interests, though most of his research falls into two main areas, philosophy of biology slash evolutionary theory and epistemology slash philosophy of science. Within philosophy of biology, he is especially interested in foundational and conceptual questions surrounding evolutionary theory. For many years, his research focused on the levels of selection question in evolutionary biology and the related issue of individual versus group conflicts of interest. And those are the topics that we're going to talk about today. So Dr. Okasha, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Not at all. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, it's my pleasure. So let me ask you first, because I guess that this issue about the levels of selection in evolutionary biology and evolutionary theory more broadly is a very contentious one. So the first question I would like to ask you is, what is a level of selection and also if there's any set of determined criteria that people use to distinguish between different levels of selection? It's a good question and perhaps the easiest way to see what the term is meant to mean is to focus on a simple example of an evolutionary or a Darwinian explanation. So suppose we observe, for example, that in a population of zebras, the average running speed has increased over time, over 10 generations, say, and we're interested in why that small evolutionary change over a few generations took place, mm -hmm. then the, the typical explanation will say something like this. Well, in the original ancestral populate, population, there was variation with respect to running speed. Some of the zebras, for whatever reason, could run faster than others. Mm -hmm. Secondly, running speed was a heritable trait, so the offspring of zebras tended to correlate in their running speed with, the, with that of their parents. And then thirdly, the differences in running speed gave rise to differences in survival and therefore in reproductive success. So given those three ingredients, variation, heritability, and associated differences in, in biological fitness, as we sometimes say, it follows that the population will evolve. That's to say, the composition of the population will gradually change over time as the slower zebras are replaced by the faster ones. Now, I think of that as a paradigmatic Darwinian explanation of a micro change, of a small local change in a population over a few generations, but of the sort of thing that scaled up gives rise to the evolutionary patterns that <clears throat> we see today. And the key thing to notice about that little explanation that I just sketched is that the evolutionary change in question is explained by a process of natural selection operating at the level of individual zebras. That's to say it's the fact that some individual zebras did better than others that accounts for the evolutionary change. And indicative of that, or another way of expressing that, is to say that the trait in question, running speed, 
is an adaptation of the individual zebra. Mm -hmm. And in particular, that contrasts with what one might naively think, which is that running fast is something that evolved because it benefits the whole zebra species or perhaps the local population of zebras. And so what we mean when we say that in that example and ones like it, natural selection acts at the individual level is to say that the trait is explained by the selective advantage it confers on the individual organism rather than on more inclusive biological entities such as species or populations or colonies or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, another, another way to think about the problem is to notice that the entities bio biologists describe what we in philosophy would call the ontology of biology comprises a set of nested units. So we find molecular biologists studying genes and indeed parts of genes, so studying the small molecular constituents of life. We find cell biologists studying larger entities, studying cells. And then we find whole organism biologists study whole organisms. And of course, above the level of the individual organism, we find entities such as family groups, kin groups, colonies, um, species, and whole ecosystems. So it seems that we can describe a sort of nested hierarchy of biological units, ranging from the very small to the much larger. And the entity we call the individual organism, which typically just means a multi-celled creature, organism, plant or animal, lies somewhere in the middle of that hierarchy. And in principle, one could envision a form of Darwinian competition or Darwinian natural selection in which the entities undergoing selection, between which selection was discriminating, were not individual organisms, but some larger or smaller unit instead. And is it that all evolutionary biologists accept and, rec and recognize different levels of selection, or that some of them deny that some levels exist, or even uh, on, on another approach, maybe some of them recognize different levels, but say that natural selection only occurs on one particular level and then the rest uh, is something like uh, byproduct or simply different levels of, anal of analysis that we can use to understand more easily how evolution occurs. It's a rather, as you pointed out in your, your first question, it's a rather contentious and convoluted area in part due to differences in terminology, I mean, not everyone agrees exactly what we mean by a level or a unit of selection. So there's an element of semantic confusion there. But even if we set that aside, there are more substantive issues on which biologists disagree. So I think I would be hesitant to make any simple summary of what the majority opinion on the matter is. Although it should be noted that for a long, long time in evolutionary biology from the 1960s, um, up until now, many biologists have been inclined to say something like, well, in principle, we could envisage natural selection operating on groups or species, or perhaps even on sub-individual -indiv sub units, such as genes or cells. But in practice, it's the individual organism that is the primary unit or level of selection. So that's one thing that people say. Um, however, against that, it should be noted that 
the body of ideas known as multi-level selection theory, which posits that the process of natural selection can and does operate at multiple levels of the biological hierarchy, sometimes simultaneously, has many adherents as well. And then conversely, there has been a line of argument around since the 1970s, associated in particular with Richard Dawkins and also with George Williams, which wants to argue that in a sense, the only real unit of selection is the gene. Um, however, that's, as, as Dawkins and others have pointed out, that viewpoint isn't really in conflict with the idea that natural selection operates on individual organisms. Uh, rather, it stems from a somewhat different um, choice of terminology, let's say. Mm -hmm. And is it that anyone considers a level of selection that would be under the level of genes or genetics? I mean, if we look back historically at uh, life and how life originated on Earth and at the point where maybe we could say that natural selection started occurring, could we talk about, for example, certain aspects of metabolism that don't really have directly to do with genes or maybe mm -hmm. things that occurred before we got cells uh, as, mm -hmm. as something where selection could have occurred as well or not? Um, uh, possibly. I mean, certainly if one takes a very um, expansive time horizon and considers the origin of life on Earth some four, four billion years ago or so, um, then we know for certain that obviously multi-celled organisms like you and I were not there at the dawn of life on Earth, and nor indeed were cells. I mean, the cell is a, relative, uh, is a relatively late product of evolution, certainly the eukaryotic cell. That's the non-bacterial cell, roughly speaking. Um, and conversely, chromosomes were not there either, and nor were genes. So it's, it's, some people think that the very first life forms on Earth were simple self-replicating molecules, probably made of RNA. Um, and that gradually, through a series of transitions and steps, we find the evolution of um, entities more like the ones that we find on Earth today. So one key step, for example, would have been the origin of the first cells, and then, which would have been similar to modern bacterial cells, and then ultimately the union of two bacterial cells into a eukaryotic cell. That's the sort found in all plants and animals. Um, and then, of course, what we call an individual plant or an animal from an expanded perspective is really a group of cells, um, so that, and, and gradually evolved from presumably um, aggregates of individual cells, which points to a supreme irony in this debate over the levels of selection in that uh, many proponents of individual level selection have always been traditionally hostile to the idea that we can sensibly take the whole, a whole group of organisms as the unit of Darwinian advantage or the unit of selection and have worried that that's a fallacious way to reason as indeed it often is. However, once one takes an expanded perspective and thinks right back to events that happened millions and millions of years ago, we realize that the very entity we call an individual organism is really just a, a, a group, a highly integrated, cohesive group of closely related cells, clonally derived from the fertilized zygote. 
in the case of sexually reproducing species. So the very entity that we call an individual organism, from a different perspective, really constitutes a group, a group of cells. And when, when that argument is made, which in a sense is, is obvious and is something that biologists have always known, but once it's emphasized in the way I just have, then we immediately see that the rush to dismiss group level selection in the 1960s as an impossible idea or something that could never work really can't be right because it was thanks to a process of group selection where group means group of cells now that the entity we call the individual organism came into being in the first place but is it that people dismissed very quickly the proposal of group selection let's say because what they were referring to was to groups of individuals and not exactly collectives of cells absolutely and the main the main reason that people objected to the notion and their arguments in many respects were absolutely right so here i think of George Williams and John Maynard Smith and others writing in, in, in the 60s and 70s was that they strongly felt that the appeal to group level advantage had led to all sorts of fallacious reasonings in biology. So I'll give you an example. This is an example that Williams uses in his famous 1966 book, Adaptation and Natural Selection. Suppose we notice that earthworms have a physiology that equips them very, very well for burrowing through the soil. It's a remarkable set of physiological adaptations earthworms have for burrowing through the soil. And we say, mm, I wonder why earthworms have that. Why did natural selection lead to that? Lead earthworms to develop that physiology. Now, suppose someone answers as follows. Well, suppose I say, look, by burrowing through the soil, the earthworm erates the soil, and that's beneficial for the microbial makeup of the soil, which in turn benefits the plant life and benefits the local ecosystem. So that's why the earthworms evolve that physiology. Now, is that a good explanation? Well, no, it's not. Because although it's perfectly true that by burrowing through the soil, the earthworm does aerate the soil and that that does benefit the plant life and the local ecosystem, that's not why earthworms evolved to do it. To give a good Darwinian explanation, a valid Darwinian explanation in that case, we need to prove advantage to the individual organism, the individual earthworm. We need to explain why the individual earthworm benefits from the, the physiological adaptations that allow it to burrow, not why some larger, more inclusive entity, such as the ecosystem, benefits. Because we know or have reason to believe that the trait evolved through a process of individual selection, in which some earthworms did better than others, not through a process of ecosystem selection, in which some ecosystems did better than others. So given that assumption about the nature of the evolutionary process that led the earthworm physiology to evolve, it's quite wrong to try and explain why earthworms have that physiology by pointing to an advantage that the physiology confers on the ecosystem rather than on the individual earthworm. And it was precisely their sense that this logical, this crucial logical point was not well understood and not properly appreciated that led authors like Williams, Maynard Smith and others to be so skeptical of the appeal to group level advantage. They thought it was a recipe for doing fallacious, for falling prey to fallacious patterns of reasoning in biology. 
And they're right, I think. But nonetheless, we must also admit that the very existence of multicelled organisms from this expanded point of view is indicative of the fact that a process of akin to group level selection must have occurred in the evolutionary past to explain how it was that from a, a situation where the only organisms were single celled ones, we moved to a situation where multicelled organisms, which are sort of large colonies of many, many, of millions and millions, billions of cells, existed. Does that make sense? Yes, I think it makes sense. And talking specifically about group selection when yeah. applied to groups of individuals, right? That is something that uh, as uh, a couple of proponents, like for example, David Sloan Wilson, Elliot yeah. Sober, and more recently, E.O. Wilson. I mean, uh, uh, pr please correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess that the two main issues here and their main arguments are first, they are trying to use it to explain certain aspects of the evolution of altruism in humans, but also in other species that they think it's really hard, even through mathematical modeling, to explain otherwise, just through individual or, ge or genetic evolution or evolution or, or selection operating on those levels. And right. on the other end, I guess one of their biggest arguments is also that Okay, so you can consider the individual and its particular traits uh, and try to understand what's its fitness according to its own individual traits. But you also, in, particularly in social species, you also have to take into account that maybe a particular individual whose features or traits would, be, would make him fitter when he is put in a group, in a particular group where those traits are not beneficial, then we have to analyze its fitness in relation to the group. Otherwise, we can't have a complete picture of uh, its, its uh, reproductive success and its fitness and all of those sorts of things. Is this correct? Or well, you said lots of different things there. Well, you said lots of different things there. So let me go back to the beginning. So it's absolutely right that there's an intimate relationship between group selection and altruism. So altruism, as we use the term in evolutionary biology, refers to a trait or a behavior that's individually costly, but beneficial to others. And at first sight, it would, one might think the theory of natural selection should predict that altruism will not exist. I mean, surely individuals should evolve traits, including behaviors that benefit themselves, not others, or else they'll be selected against, they'll be at a selective disadvantage. And yet we find in social species, including to some extent humans, um, we do find altruistic behaviors, perhaps most famously in social insect species, such as ants and wasps and and, and termites and bees, in which we find extremes of altruism, in which the workers within an ant colony appear to devote their whole life towards helping the reproductive effort of the queen, typically leaving no offspring themselves, and in some cases being physiologically sterile, so incapable of doing so, devoting their whole life towards 
foraging, protecting the queen, protecting the colony, tending the queen's larvae, and so on. And so a natural question arises, well, why would any organism do that? What's in it for them? And it's here that the appeal to group selection arises. And indeed, this was a line of argument sketched by Darwin himself in considering, in considering how self-sacrificial or other-regarding moral behavior might have evolved in early hominids. This Darwin's suggestion was that although the altruistic behavior is individually costly, it could be beneficial at the group level. So if we imagine a process of group-on-group -group competition, rather than individual-on-individual individual competition, then the groups that do best might precisely be ones in which there's a high frequency or high proportion of altruistic individuals all working for the common good. And that's still the idea, in essence, that authors such as David Sloan Wilson, Elliot Sober, E.O. Wilson, and others advocate today. Now, their viewpoint is a somewhat controversial one, uh, primarily for the following reason. For a long time, it was argued and thought that although altruism was, is indeed a reality, it doesn't necessarily have to be explained by group level selection. Rather, it can be explained by a body of ideas sometimes called kin selection. Um, and the key idea of kin selection is that organisms should evolve to behave altruistically towards their genetic relatives rather than towards unrelated members of the population. So the idea is that altruism, although anomalous from the viewpoint of, Darwin, of Darwinism, if we think of altruism being directed towards unrelated organisms, makes perfect sense if we're thinking of organisms helping their genetic relatives because they share genes. So the indirect, so genetic interests, um, of the organism are being furthered by it helping its relative. Now, that body of ideas called kin selection, closely associated with the notion of inclusive fitness due to the English biologist William Hamilton in, in beginning in the 60s, is often regarded as a way of explaining how altruism can evolve without the problematic appeal or the supposedly problematic appeal to group level selection. Now, the authors you mentioned such as Wilson, Sober and Wilson, they maintain that that's not the correct way to think about the relation between group and kin selection. That in fact they say that the appeal to kin selection is a type of group selection. And moreover, that group selection can operate in circumstances where there isn't strong genetic relatedness. This is a line of argument that Edward O. Wilson has pushed recently. So for that reason, they favor a re-evaluation of what was for many years the orthodox understanding of um, how altruism should be understood. So in short, the disagreement is not over whether altruism exists, but over whether how it should be explained. One camp arguing that the, the, the better way to think about it is in terms of kin selection, which is an individualistic perspective, really. Another set of authors arguing that group selection is the right way to think about it. And a third set of authors arguing that there's not really any difference between the two anyway. They're different ways of describing the same thing. So it's a convoluted and complicated debate. On the one hand, it sounds like an empirical issue. Is this, the, is kin selection the right explanation or is group selection? But the waters are muddied 
by the fact that an influential group of authors, both both in, in, in biology and in the philosophy of biology, have tried to make the argument that the choice isn't an empirical one to, in the first place. Rather, we have a choice between two alternative frameworks or conceptualizations of the same evolutionary process. So is the biggest disagreement there, uh, does it have to do with um, a genetic relatedness in the sense that people who espouse that we can explain the evolution of altruism through kin selection uh, are trying to explain it only on the basis of interactions between individuals that are genetically related, but the group selectionists are trying to expand it to occur or to include also individuals that do not share genes among themselves, even though they are part of the same group? Is that Broadly speaking, that's correct. Um, although there, there are some the issue is slightly complicated by exactly what we mean by relatedness. Mm -hmm. um, however, that's a somewhat technical matter that I won't go further into for now, but I will say one thing. Um, I mean, as a very broad brush empirical generalization, I think it's true to say that the majority of cases of documented altruistic behavior in nature are cases where there is a reasonably high degree of genetic relatedness between um, the organism exhibiting the altruistic behavior and the one benefiting from it. So for example, helper birds in many bird species often will um, assist a breeding pair to raise their young. You may say, well, why, is that, why does the helper bird do that? Why, what are they gaining from it? Are they gaining any direct benefit? Are they maybe gaining experience in, in egg, in child rearing or something? And the answer is possibly, but studies have shown that typically they're more likely to help their genetic relatives to raise offspring than to help unrelated um, birds to raise their offspring. So I think it's generally true to say that relatedness plays a key role in determining whether an, an organism in a social species will exhibit altruistic behavior or not. The human species being possibly an exception to that. Um, however, it must also be admitted, and this is Edward O. Wilson's motivation in part for having changed his mind about the relative importance of kin and group selection, that in certain insect species, including ones where there's, the, the colony appears, the, the colony of social insects appears to be um, highly integrated and cohesive with everyone working for the common good, there are much lower levels of genetic relatedness than had been expected and predicted, suggesting that the absence of, relate, of high, a high level of relatedness among the insects in the colony is not necessarily a barrier to the colony behaving as an adapted unit, as, as an adapted group itself. And I think that's the empirical finding that has motivated Edward O. Wilson to become, in, in his recent writings over the last uh, decade or, or decade and a half, much more sympathetic to the group selection viewpoint than he was in his work in the 1970s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So is it the case then, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I understand it, 
uh, when we're talking about group selection from the perspective of D.S. Wilson and others, uh, we have also to analyze each individual's fitness in relation to the group he is part of, right? And, and not simply the people uh, each individual is genetically related to or even his own uh, traits. Not quite sure I follow. I mean, I think there are broadly two ways you can look at it. Right. One way looks at it uh, as follows. This is the, the, Dia, the David Sloan Wilson approach. He wants to say something like this. We can have natural selection operating on individuals within a group. And similarly, we can have natural selection operating on groups, favoring some groups over others. And the overall evolutionary outcome depends on the balance between those two selective forces. So on that way of looking at it, sometimes called multi-level selection, we can have natural selection simultaneously operating at two hierarchical levels, selecting between individuals in a group and selecting between groups themselves. An alternative conceptualization is to say, no, ultimately the selection is operating on the individuals. It's just that in order to understand why any individual has the level of fitness that it does, that's to say, the re enjoys the reproductive success it does, we have to take into account its social context. We have to take into account its relationship and the social interactions it has with other group members. So on that way of looking at it, selection is only operating at one level and the role of the group is to constitute in effect part of the selective environment against which natural selection takes place. So that, th those are the two ways of looking at it the individualistic way and the multi-level way. But as I say, there's this um, overarching sort of philosophical question about whether there's really any difference between those at all, whether, whether it's empirical difference or it's a conventional difference. It's a difference of framing rather than fact, if you like, which is a large part of what um, some of the chapters in my 2006 book are about. Right. And let's say, just for the sake of the argument, that selection operates only at one level, like, for example, the level of the individual. That level where selection operates is the one where we can have or, or adaptations can be produced, right? And if, for example, we have a group level traits, we then we would then have to consider them to be byproducts of the adaptations that are brought uh, or, or that occur at the level of individuals. Right. 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 So take, for example, a trait of or property of some species, like the property of being extremely widely distributed geographically. Now, possibly, quite possibly, that is a beneficial attribute for the species to have in that it means that the species is less likely to go extinct. But that's probably not why the species has the property of being geographically highly dispersed. Rather, that's a side effect of the dispersal of the individuals and the populations within the species, which will have their own reasons for dispersing in, in the way that they do. So it seems that in that case, it will be a mistake to say we found an attribute of a species which benefits it, namely being geographically 
dispersed and which is therefore a species level adaptation, we would say, no, 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 that's a side effect of adaptations at the individual level, not an adaptation of the whole species. So the crucial thing to see is that the distinction between adaptation and side effect, which we're happy and familiar with drawing at a single level, can also apply at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. So it may well be that a side effect of individuals evolving the traits they do is that the groups or the species that they live in may come to exhibit certain features which may or may not be beneficial for the whole group or species. But even if they are, we don't want to interpret them as adaptations in the sense that natural selection didn't lead the species to evolve that attribute because it benefited the species. Rather, the attribute in question is a side effect of lower level processes that went on. Mm -hmm. So if we are to accept the genes I view put forth by people like Richard Dawkins and George C. Williams and others and say that the gene is the unit of selection and the level and the genetic is the level at which uh, natural selection occurs then with the knowledge that we have nowadays there would be a problem there when people say that uh, that particular thing would encapsulate all that occurs uh, at an evolutionary level because we also have things like uh, cultural evolution and cultural transmission, epigenetic mechanisms and I mean uh, mechanisms of inheritance that are non-genetic. Yeah, so there are a few different things going on here. So firstly, you, you make reference to the gene's eye view of evolution um, one formulation of which, although perhaps not a, a very useful one in the light of what we know today, is to say that the gene is the true unit of selection or the only real unit of selection, something that Dawkins and Daniel Dennett wanted to argue some time ago. The problem with saying that is it makes it sound as if there's a contrast between gene-level selection and individual-level selection or group-level selection, but really there isn't. And I think, as Dawkins himself pointed out very well in his book, The Extended Phenotype, really it's better to think of the gene, um, of the selfish gene theory, as a perspective, sometimes called the gene's eye viewpoint, on which we can think about, from which we can think about, or from which we can describe the process of natural selection, whatever level it takes place at. So, for example, in the starting example I gave you of selection choosing between faster running and slower running zebras in a population and causing the composition of the population to change over time, we could re-describe that process from the gene's eye view by saying, well, there were two genetic variants in the population. One was a gene for running fast and another was a gene for running slower. And the former gene did better than its rival, than its allele as we say in genetics, than the alternative form of the gene, which encoded a different phenotypic trait. And so ultimately the selective competition was between genes. The genes for running fast prospered and the genes for running slow declined in the population. Now really, that's just a redescription of what I originally said in terms of selection on individual organisms. So that's why it's misleading to think that gene level selection is an empirical alternative 
to individual level selection, except in a few cases associated with what Dawkins calls outlaw genes, or today we call selfish genetical elements, in which some genes spread in a population despite harming their host organism. But those cases are very much the rule, not the norm in, in biological evolution. So that's why that, that's, um, that comment I've just made talk, speaks to the relationship between the gene, gene's eye view of evolution or genic selection, as it's sometimes put, and individual level selection. You also mentioned phenomena such as cultural evolution and epigenetic inheritance. And I think of those as extremely interesting phenomena, but of a slightly different character. So epigenetic inheritance refers to, in the broadest sense of the term, refers to the fact that organisms do not inherit just their, uh, gene, their nuclear genes from their parents, but also a whole lot of other resources as well. And in some cases that can have profound evolutionary consequences. And it was a, it was a, um, an, an error, I suppose, of the classical neo-Darwinian viewpoint that dominated evolutionary biology for decades to talk as if genes were the only thing that were inherited from parents to offspring. And now people often you know, realize that that wasn't literally true, but thought it was a pretty good simplification. And for evolutionary purposes, that was all that mattered. Um, but proponents of epigenetic inheritance have come to realize that there are cases in which that's not true um, and which non-genetic resources are inherited down the generations and which can, that can in fact have interesting evolutionary consequences. Although I, I still think it's fair to say that while important, the phenomenon of epigenetic inheritance is quantitatively speaking less important than genetic inheritance, at least from an evolutionary point of view. So that's epigenetic inheritance. You also mentioned cult the cultural evolution idea and the associated notion of a meme um, that was Dawkins' term for a unit of culture, which was to be modeled on a gene. And that's a, another discussion that um, sometimes goes hand in hand with discussions of levels of selection, but uh, in my opinion, it raises slightly different issues. We could discuss them if you like. Mm -hmm. Right, and talking about those precise issues, I mean, first of all, let me ask you if you agree with the proposal coming from some people, including, again, David Sloan Wilson, uh, where they propose uh, changing uh, the um, modern evolutionary synthesis and creating a new, uh, what they call a new extended evolutionary synthesis to take into account all of these other processes of evolution that occur apart from strict genetic evolution. And by the way, if you could tell us what the, that proposal is precisely about. Mm -hmm. I mean, the notion of an extended evolutionary th synthesis refers to um, an umbrella of ideas that some recent biologists have argued need to be added in to sort of mainstream evolutionary biology. So the notion of the synthesis dates back to something called the, the modern synthesis or the neo-Darwinian synthesis, which was forged in the 1940s and the 1930s to the 1950s, I would say, and which came to dominate the stage 
in, in evolutionary biology in, in the 20th century. And at the heart of the neo-Darwinian idea uh, was the idea that ultimately the way that evolution worked is that some organisms are selected over others and that the traits in virtue of which some organisms are selected over others have a genetic basis and that acquired characters in particular are not inherited. So that's to say that Lamarckian inheritance is impossible. And this became a coda for um, the, the neo-Darwinian synthesis, the rejection of Lamarckian inheritance. And part of the motivation behind people who advocate a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis is to sort of update things and to say, well, no, we now know that so-called Lamarckian inheritance in which an organism transmits traits to its offspring that are not genetically encoded, but that it's acquired during its lifetime, while rare and not completely unknown, it's not, there's no sort of logical impossibility that inheritance can be Lamarckian. So the absolute ban on um, on epigenetic inheritance that the neo-Darwinian synthesis supposedly imposed shouldn't be accepted. That's part of their motivation. However, the label extended evolutionary synthesis is a rather inclusive and somewhat vague one, and other ideas seem to be thrown into the mix too, such as an appeal to ideas like multi-level selection, like cultural evolution, something that's called niche construction, which refers to the fact that organisms don't merely passively respond to the environment, but also actively construct or alter the environment in ways that may benefit them. Um, so all of these ideas, which I think it's best, it's fair to say, um, are, all, are all valid in their own right. And the question really, in my opinion, is just how quantitatively important they are. The suggestion of the extended evolutionary synthesis is that they all be thrown into the mix too. Uh, to formulate a sort of more inclusive um, toolkit for for biology, you know, go, going forward in, in in the 21st century. Um, so opinions differ on this proposal. Um, I think some people have, some biologists certainly support it, as do many philosophers of science. Um, others have been more skeptical, arguing that it's wrong to say that we need some kind of fundamental re-evaluation of the key evolutionary ideas in the neo-Darwinian synthesis. Um, obviously, it wasn't the whole story, but according to that latter viewpoint, to talk of uh, an, an extended synthesis is to overstate the discontinuity between the, the, the recent theoretical ideas and the, the, the tradition. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, it, it includes a lot of different things, like, as you said, cultural evolution, epigenetic mechanisms of inheritance. I've also had Dr. David Sloan Wilson on the show, and he also proposes things like symbolism and language and the ways during the lifetime of an individual, they can also create new sort of cognitive mechanisms, for example. I mean, but uh, how do you think we should approach each of those things? Because for me, at least, it doesn't seem that uh, a process like cultural evolution works exactly in the same way as genetic evolution. I mean, there are different 
mechanisms maybe of selection operating mm-hmm. in cultural evolution than in genetic evolution and things like that. So, I, I mean, if we are to have an extended evolutionary synthesis, uh, how, how would we integrate all of those processes? Well, I don't really have a strong view personally on the question of the extended evolutionary synthesis. Um, I mean, on on the issue of cultural evolution, I agree with you that the mechanisms of cultural evolution are rather different from the mechanisms of genetic evolution or biological evolution more generally. I think most people would agree with that. However, I think that... um, that's not to say that thinking of cultural evolution in broadly Darwinian terms may not be useful. And indeed, I, I would point to the body of work done by cultural evolutionists, often under the label dual inheritance theory or gene culture co-evolutionary theory, which um, show, shows, I think, very very nicely how cultural inheritance, um, which typically is horizontal rather than vertical, that's to say that people inherit their culture often from, not from their parents, but from other members of their community, can have really interesting evolutionary consequences uh, that are not at all trivial or obvious. And so I I think that the idea of cultural evolution is a good one. um, And I think, in my opinion, stands, is independent of the question of exactly how close the parallel is between um, genetic evolution and, and cultural evolution. I mean, that's a good question to think about, but I do think that the proof of the pudding is really, um, sorry, the proof is really in the pudding, is what I'm trying to say, that, I mean, the body of work that cultural evolutionists have done, I think is um, is interesting and hard to dismiss and shows the importance of the notion, even if it's correct to say that at some level it may not literally be a Darwinian process. So there is, a, perhaps to put it more succinctly, there is significant disanalogies between cultural evolution and genetic evolution, but that shouldn't lead us, I think, to deny that insights from evolutionary biology can help us to understand the transmission of culture. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you refer to gene culture coevolution. So do you think that, in in a sense, we could have sort of uh, nested levels of evolution, and I'm not talking about, in this case, uh, the distinctions between uh, evolution occurring at the genetic, individual, and group level, but rather uh, uh, evo- um, interactions between, for example, genetic, cultural, and maybe even other kinds of evolution. Um, I mean, I think interaction between genetic evolution and cultural evolution is a, is a reality and indeed is part of the interesting phenomenon that gene culture co-evolutionists have pointed to. They've pointed to the ways in which the spread of a cultural practice can alter the selective environment against which genetic variants um, compete. And conversely, the way in which genetic evolution can lead to or prepare the ground for cultural change. Um, so absolutely, I'm on board with the idea of an interaction there. I would hesitate, though, to describe it in terms of levels, simply because I think that um, precisely risks the confusion that you very wisely 
point out that you're not falling prey to. I think if we talk about cultural and genetic evolution as being different levels of evolution or levels of selection, we immediately invite confusion with what's already a confusing debate about the levels of selection in the sense of individual versus group. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just ask you one last question and going back to the levels of selection, do you think that uh, there's any way by which um, natural selection could occur at the species level? Well, that idea has been mooted sometimes over the years. So Stephen Jay Gould, for example, and Niles Eldridge in work in the 70s and 80s, they argued in favor of what they call macroevolution, um, of which species level selection was meant to be a, a key component. So this is the idea that we can think of a whole species as the unit undergoing selection. And when the species splits into two in the, in the process of speciation, mm -hmm. uh, lineage splitting, we can think of that as akin to asexual reproduction. And when a species goes extinct, that's akin to death. So we can think of, in other words, speciation is like reproduction, extinction is like death. And so therefore we can envisage a form of evolutionary competition taking place over millions and millions of years where the selection is between species rather than between individuals within species. I mean, logically speaking, it seems like a good idea or a plausible idea. I think the question is really, um, does it have any empirical importance? I mean, what are the phenomena that the process of species level selection is supposed to explain? I mean, it, it, it's, I, I wouldn't want to rule it out altogether, but I think most people would agree that just because it must be such a slow process in virtue of how long species typically persist for before either going extinct or splitting, that it's unlikely to produce the cumulative adaptations that the process of individual level selection uh, produces because the generation time of an individual organism is so much quicker than that of a whole species. So on logical grounds, I would say species selection, fine. I'm yet to be persuaded that it has many um, compelling empirical instances. However, that may be a paucity of it. That may be an epistemological problem that we don't have enough information that enables us to detect it when it goes on. And, I mean, do you think it could be helpful in any way uh, to approach things from a species-level perspective that it would help us understand certain traits that are uh, acquired by the individuals of each species? I mean, because it seems to me rather implausible that that would help explain, for example, why a particular species has certain traits, certain adaptations. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Um, I mean, I'll give you one example that proponents of species selection have sometimes used. They've argued that... Um, there could have been a species level selection process going on in which asexual species were, dis were eliminated and sexual species um, were preserved. The argument being that an asexual species doesn't contain very much genetic variation, mm -hmm. right? So species 
parthenogenetically reproducing organisms like certain lizard species, for example, in which there are no males. A species like that is highly susceptible to going extinct if the environment changes because it doesn't have a reserve of genetic variation that it can draw on in times of environmental change. So the suggestion is the sexual species were preserved and the asexual ones went extinct and that may explain certain facts about the modern uh, taxonomic distribution of sexual versus asexual species. And I think that that may well be, but what's, what's implausible is the suggestion that that could explain why sexual reproduction evolved in the first place. So here, in other words, it's plausible, I think, to say that sexual selection, sorry, species selection could explain the maintenance of sexual reproduction, but not plausible to say that it could explain its original evolution because it requires you know, complex um, organismic machinery, the machinery described by reproductive biology for a species to reproduce sexually. And it's not very likely that that could have arisen by a simple process in which some species survive and others go extinct. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Rokesha, let's end the interview here. Before we go, uh, I will be leaving links in the description box of the video to your work. Would you like to make reference to some websites where maybe it would be easier for people to get in touch with your work? Um, well, they could look on my website at the University of Bristol for a, a summary and, and list of publications if they like. Um, I would draw attention to my latest book, given that you give me the opportunity, uh, which came out in 2018 called Agents and Goals in Evolution, and also to an introductory book about philosophy of biology that will be out later this year called Philosophy of Biology, a very short introduction that I hope explains the ideas behind in the philosophy of biology in a non-technical way that everyone can understand. Okay, no. excellent. I will include that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Okasha, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And I really love the conversation. So. Not at all. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. You also have the alternatives of supporting me via subscri Subscribestar or Paypal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my $5 or more patrons, including Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Tafiniak, Sergio Condreano, Iane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Ely, John Connors, Adam Cassell, and Dr. Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and my three producers, Isar Weber, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.